good evening, Mercy View. My name is Jima Raubach. I am a partner, and we are reading tonight Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Jima read last week's verse as well. It was one verse. We, we felt like, you know, it wasn't enough. So we wanted to give her another shot. So we gave her another one this week. Thank you. Yeah, maybe we'll add another one next week. We're up to two so far. So, no, excellent. Thank you, Jema. Well, welcome. Good to see everybody here this evening. How we doing? Good, good. Welcome to uh, Mercy View. If you're visiting with us, just want to echo John's uh, welcome to you. Honored that you would choose to, to come and, and worship with us. Hope you've been encouraged so far. And um, looking forward to getting into the Word of God with you. Well, um, I don't know if you caught this last Sunday, and I, it, with all integrity, uh, mean this, that uh, last week's sermon was all due to the providence of God. If you were here last week, uh, we looked at the sixth commandment together, which is do not murder. And as many of you are aware, this past week, uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, a decision that was made back in 1973, almost 50 years ago. And uh, if you've been following uh, or a part of the pro-life movement, you know that this is probably the most significant act of justice in modern history. And while the ruling brings a change of direction, not an end necessarily, we, we continue to pray for that and hope for that, um, it is an essential victory for the pro-life cause that should be celebrated by all Christians. It marks really, I think, the dawning of a new pro-life movement. And we ought to rightly celebrate it for what it is. It is an opportunity for thousands upon thousands of pre-born babies to have the most fundamental human right, and that is the right to live. So it is appropriate tonight for us to pause and to praise God for his sovereignty and his mercy in this decision. And we should also honor the countless men and women and organizations and churches that have uh, helped us arrive at this moment. But it also must be said that as the church, as Christians, one of the most prominent critiques against us in being pro-life is that we don't care about what happens after the baby is here. Now, I don't believe that that's true. I don't think that that critique levied against us is, is, uh, is always true. But May that never be said of us moving forward. We must now redouble and expand our efforts to address the underlying factors that make abortion appear the only alternative for so many. So friends, some of you have been a part of this. I, I, I know I've heard your stories. You've been a part of the pro-life movement for many, many years. Thank you for all the work that you have done. But it's time for all of us to engage in this issue as we move forward with our money, with our time, and our prayers to the, to the end of the end of abortion. So I, I pray that we can be a part of what I'm sensing is a, is a truly spiritual revolution that's happening right now. 
And I want us to be engaged on all fronts before a baby is born, after a baby is born, that we save babies, yes, that we serve mothers, and we support fathers all along the way. Let's pray together about this. Lord, thank you so much for um, what is really a momentous thing to, to uh, acknowledge tonight. And um, we do want to celebrate what we hope is the, the dawning of a new movement of pro-lifers who um, now can join together in a different way with this change of direction to see, Lord, that, that, that pre-born babies have the most fundamental right afforded to them, the right to live. And so we, we do take a moment tonight to praise you, to worship you, to exalt you for your sovereignty, for your mercy in this. We want to thank you for all the, the men and women and organizations and churches who have assisted this movement to help us arrive at this historic moment. Lord, we ask that you would help us see the ways in which we can put to action the things we talked about last week, and that is to have a all-of-life, pro-life approach, and that, God, you would help us to be a, a people who would cultivate a culture of life, whether that's with our money, our time, our energy, and our prayers. Lord, we, we thank you for what we get to celebrate tonight, and it's because of you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Well, we are continuing a series that we are in in the Ten Commandments. And tonight we move on to the next one, the uh, Seventh Commandment that you heard Jama read. And we have so much to get into tonight. I typically open with a story or illustration. We don't have time for that tonight. We've got to jump in. And as we do that, I want to invite you to see two things. First, God's design for sex is meant to protect us emotionally. And then secondly, God's design for sex is meant to protect us spiritually. Now, before we jump into our time tonight, I want to just say a quick word to the parents in the house. Uh, Due to the nature of the message tonight, as a courtesy, I just want to let you know that We're going to talk about some things tonight that are of a sensitive nature, but we will keep it, I promise you, PG. And if you would like, if if, if that's not enough, I mean, you know, if if that maybe still leaves you uncomfortable, and I know it's warm, but, but if you would want to go out to the playground, hang out there on the other side of this wall here on the west wall of the sanctuary, you will not offend me in the slightest. I completely understand. And if, and if you do that, I do need to ask that you'd stay with your kiddo um, just for uh, safety's sake. And you can grab the audio or video this week on our website. All right, now, as we did last week, this week, because it is just a sentence, we are going to need to do some additional work as we look at this commandment tonight. In other words, we are going to need to do what good Bereans do. Uh, good Bereans look at the whole counsel of God in the scriptures um, to understand something that is like tonight, short or simple or seemingly simple, or maybe sometimes we come across passages that are difficult to understand. Um, we have to maybe look at some other places to fill out our understanding to 
understand what God is trying to teach us. Tonight is, is no exception. Because as we think about the issue of adultery, um, we really need to start by looking first at the inverse of adultery. And that is the idea and the design of, of uh, marriage by God. And to do that, we have to go back to the very beginning. In Genesis 1, if you know the story of God creating everything. God is creating and he's declaring everything that he has made to be good, even humanity. He even says about humanity, it's very good that he created man and woman. But in Genesis 2, we actually discover the first thing that wasn't good. You remember what he said wasn't good? It wasn't good that Adam should be alone, for man to be alone. And so God creates woman and brings Adam and Eve together in an institution called marriage as husband and as wife. And what God is doing in that institution is once and for all setting the, the standard for what marriage should look like. <clears throat> So what is God up to when he did that? Well, this isn't an exhaustive list, but here's a few things that I believe God was doing in instituting marriage in this way. First, he, in the, the institution of marriage, the covenant of marriage, he is wanting to bring about unity. The relationship between a husband and a wife is meant to be a union that in bringing their lives together in a mysterious way, the Lord makes them one in spirit. But God also in the covenant of marriage is, is about the idea of intimacy. Closely related to the union of a husband and a wife is the intimacy which they experience in marriage. Physical intimacy is the most obvious, right? In marriage, sexually, they become one in physical union, but there is also a, an emotional union, an intimacy, and a, a, a spiritual one as well. Thirdly, procreation. When God brings man and woman together in marriage, he, and he did this in the, the first marriage, he commanded them to be what? Fruitful and to multiply. And this reproduction of life is meant to be carried out within the union of marriage according to God's design. And then lastly, fellowship, or we could say friendship. God created Eve and brought her to Adam and Adam to Eve for companionship and for friendship. Now, if you know the story of the first marriage in, in Genesis, you know that in Genesis 3, the enemy comes to disrupt the first marriage. Or we could say it this way, the first wedding between our first parents was immediately followed by the first war. Notice that Satan doesn't show up until Adam and Eve get married, right until after they come together in marriage. And when the enemy does this, he sows strife, he sows discord between them, so much so that they begin to distrust one another. They begin to have suspicion for one another. Shame and pride and blame begin to like compete with the perfect love and unity that God intended for them to have for one another. And friends, should be no mystery as we sit here and 
many, many years later after this first marriage is attacked, that Satan has been waging war on marriages ever since. And one of the ways that he has done that is through the sinful actions of adultery. So what is it? What is adultery? When God says in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, what, uh, what does he mean? Well, one way that we can define adultery is to say that it is those things that the enemy intends to use to undermine God's intended purposes and design for marriage, right? If marriage is between one man and one woman, adultery is literally adding someone or something, particularly sexually, in a way that compromises the marriage and in some instances breaks the marriage. And it undermines marriage because it disrupts and sometimes breaks the unity and the intimacy and fellowship that is intended to be experienced within the covenant relationship and confines of a marriage. So here's what I, I want to do tonight. We said earlier we want to be good Bereans. We're going to look at a couple other passages in the Bible to kind of wrap our heads around what is God teaching us here. Um, and the first place I want to take you to is 1 Corinthians 6. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, beginning in verse 15. But I'm just going to read for you what Paul says to us, the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 6, again, beginning in verse 15. Here's his words. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. For who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. And then if you jump down to verse 2 in chapter 7 of the next chapter, Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality that he just told us to flee from, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, Paul is being provocative, but not unnecessarily so. Notice that he uses the idea of prostitution to make his point about God's design for sex. It's rhetorically bold. See, sex is God's ordained and designed way to say to another human being, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And Paul is saying that if you use that for any other purpose than what God's purpose is, you're actually living out in, you're enacting a lie. To have sex with someone outside of marriage is, in a sense, to become one with that person. That is what God's design for sexual intimacy is all about. We just said this. It unites us, right, with one another. 
It's a nonverbal piece of communication that God designed to carry a message within a specific relationship. And Paul is saying here that if you use it in the wrong way, you destroy its usefulness. And though he doesn't use the word here, he is saying you have committed adultery. So what is Paul's admonishment in light of this? Three words, right? Flee sexual immorality. Run from anything that unites you to someone or something outside of your marriage relationship. In fact, up to up in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says something kind of bizarre and, and, and but has everything to do with what we're talking about here. In verse 13, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he continues, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Here's what Paul is saying. The culture of that time believed that a person who per, was permitted to have anything and everything that it craved even if that was in the area of, of sex. So they would say things like, when I get hungry, I eat. Or when I feel sexual, I engage in sexual things. But Paul is saying that we can't apply that idea to the issue of sex because God has a totally different like, approach to, to sexuality. Paul is saying that much of our sexuality and our, our immorality with sexuality is us running to our sinful uh, appetites rather than away from them. And we are to flee sexual immoralities. We are to run away from the sexual appetites that are outside of God's design. So here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. God's design for sex is actually meant to protect you emotionally. See, the Bible says that marriage is like a gym tumbler. You guys know what a gym tumbler is? It's a, it's a little contraption that you put two diamonds in, and alongside the diamonds you put in this uh, compound. And as the tumbler begins to move these diamonds around, they knock the rough edges off of each other until they become these beautiful smooth stones. But if you try to put those diamonds in the gym tumbler and you don't put that compound in, the diamonds crack and they break. The marriage covenant are the walls of the tumbler. And the compound in marriage is sex. Because again, in sex, you and I are saying to someone else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. So if you use that outside of that covenant, what happens is instead of it actually strengthening your ability to trust yourself and to be vulnerable and commit yourself to someone else, it does the inverse. It destroys your ability to trust someone else, to give yourself away to someone, to be vulnerable to someone, just like diamonds in a gym tumbler without the compound. It is an emotional nightmare, actually. So underneath, friends, the seventh commandment here is this idea. God is very interested in what you and I do with our sexuality. And he puts a claim on it 
by putting it in the Ten Commandments, right? What are the Ten Commandments? It's our recognition that He is God and we are. He knows what's best for us and we don't. And so He is saying, friends, in the Seventh Commandment, you're mine. I have set down the standards for this in your life. And if you will live according to this, you will find emotional fulfillment. God claims the right to dictate the bounds and nature of our sexual activity. But he doesn't do it to be a killjoy. He doesn't do it to be a prude. God's intent in creating this boundary actually means he is wanting to bring to us the very thing that was threatened in the garden between Adam and Eve. Trust. Vulnerability. Union. Friendship, sexual fulfillment, all these things leading to an emotional flourishing for you. And when we engage in sex in the way that God has designed, it brings a whole life freedom. That's why he says in his seventh word to us, do not commit adultery. God's design for sex is meant to protect us emotionally. Now, let's look briefly at another passage of Scripture to, again, to continue and unpack the seventh commandment. Jesus himself actually addresses this issue in the Sermon on the Mount. You notice last week he did the same in the, with the sixth commandment. He does the same here with the seventh in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. And he says a lot more than we have time to do justice to tonight. But it's clear in that, those just three verses... That Jesus is concerned for believers to not only strive outwardly in their sexual integrity, but inwardly as well. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice that Jesus is first telling us that there is more than one way to break the seventh commandment. (laughs) Jesus is saying that just because you have not taken up with a prostitute or, you know, like what what, uh, Paul just said, doesn't mean that you haven't kept the commandment. In other words, there is more than one way to fall short of fulfilling this commandment. And Jesus explains this by going to the issue of lust. Here's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. If you think that you are good in in like meeting the standard of the seventh commandment, you think you've met it perfectly or almost perfectly, uh, Jesus is saying, hold on a second, consider your lust. He's saying that the things that we yearn after, like inside of us, okay, like the things that move us to look at certain things, what we lust for with our eyes affects our hearts, and our hearts determine to a certain extent what we lust for with our eyes. And I want you to notice how serious the connection Jesus is wanting to make between lust and sin. It's provocative, but truthful. He connects lust lust 
with hell. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, Jesus knows how powerful this particular sin can be. People who are caught up with the sexual sins of, uh, in their life of, of various sor- sorts, they will do everything that they can to deny that they have a problem. They'll deny admitting it to a, a friend who comes to them and says, hey, brother or sister, you've got to stop that relationship with that person. Brother or sister, you have got to stop viewing pornography. Brother, sister, you've got to stop engaging in that activity. They will minimize, they will hide, they will explain away what Jesus says here leads to hell. And Jesus actually goes far, so far as to say that this is the kind of sin that can so take a hold of your soul that it becomes a conduit to hell. See, Jesus' ultimate concern in the seventh commandment, and even what he says here, excuse me, uh, God's concern in the seventh commandment, Jesus' concern here in Matthew 5, isn't just your moral purity. He's concerned about your spiritual maturity, your spiritual purity. He's concerned about your greatest need, your need for salvation. And in Matthew 5, Jesus realizes that these kinds of sins, sexual sins, can so take hold of the heart that they can separate you from God. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. God's design for sex is meant to protect us spiritually as well. And notice what Jesus calls us to. He doesn't call us to deal with this, with the issue of lust, um, casually. In fact, in in a continued provocative way, he uses some of the most graphic language that you could use about how to deal with lust, right? What does he say? It says, cut your hand from you and cast it away. It causes you to sin. Pluck your eye out and cast it away if it causes you to stumble. This is Jesus' way of saying how we treat sex, how we treat lust, is relative to the spiritual health of our souls. So we need to do some uh, work tonight, just just briefly here, about some of the ways that you and I are to apply what Jesus is saying here. And this also isn't an exhaustive list, but when I think about the time we have left and, and, and really the, the, the main things that I would want to say here, I've got three things that I think we need to consider. Again, we're considering uh, what does it mean for you and I to apply what Jesus means by us being decisive with killing sexual sin in our lives, all right? The first one should be obvious. We've spoken to it in in a couple different ways here. But one of the ways that we are decisively uh, fighting sexual sin in our lives is that we reject premarital or extramarital emotional and or physical affairs. 
An emotional affair is where you have adultery of the heart. It is not yet necessarily moved to your body, your hands. If, if you have a friendship with someone of the opposite sex that is private and personal, that is an, an emotional affair and that is a sin. And here's what typically happens within an emotional affair. When that is fostered, when that is cultivated, it leads to a physical affair. And a physical affair is where the emotional affair is consummated, <clears throat> again, either before marriage, pre, pre-marriage, um, or within marriage. Friends, this is why the writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. When we don't honor the marriage bed, that's, that's language to mean that, again, the, the, the relationship sexually that we are to have with our spouses exclusively in the confines of our, our relationship. We are, if we don't do that, we are defiling the marriage bed. So when we don't do that, we sin, right? But the second issue we're to flee from, it's one that's rampant in our culture. It's everywhere we turn. And it's pornography. And friends, pornography is wrecking individual lives and marriages at a rate that has never been seen before. At least we just keep finding that it's, it's affecting so many people negatively. See, let's just be real. Like when, when you have indulged in pornography, you've already begun to commit the sin of idolatry. Because idolatry does what? Idolatry divides the loyalties of the heart. So instead of the heart being undividedly loyal to the one true God and to your spouse, you are beginning to love and to worship and to find your gratification sexually in something that is forbidden. But there's another massive problem with pornography. It's the issue of secrecy. And that leads to a divided life as well. You live one way in one place and in another way, another. And then finally, pornography is, is isolating because it teaches us to seek our gratification alone without our spouse. And when we find that gratification alone, we create a barrier with our spouse. And this is sin. Um, the third issue that you and I are to flee from as we think about how to fight sexual sin is both the temptation of same-sex attraction and the practice of homosexuality. In Romans 1, Paul says, the active and unrepentant homosexual, as with all active unrepentant sinners, they will not enter the kingdom of God. Or said another way, it is a form of adultery because it is outside of God's design for marriage and sex. Now, what about the challenges of same-sex attraction? Like, is same-sex attraction the same as homosexual behavior? I, I think this is where things get a little more challenging. In my friendships with those who experience same-sex attraction... I found that no one says that they just woke up one day and chose to be that way. 
Most, not all, but most look at the Bible's sexual ethic and understand and admit that their desires are disordered. And all of my friends who experience same-sex attraction understand that to act out on those desires would equate to homosexual behavior or practice. But listen, almost all of them said that they still experience same-sex attraction. So I just want to say a word to you tonight, whether that's, that's your story or uh, someone that you are close to. There is a difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is not the same as sin. Temptation can certainly lead to sin, but maintaining the distinction between the two I think is very important in this discussion. Whether the temptation is same-sex attraction, heterosexual immorality, materialism, laziness, pride, or whatever, if the person recognizes the danger and seeks deliverance from the temptation and resists acting upon it to the glory of Jesus, friends, that is obedience. That is not sin. Author and counselor Ed Welch says it this way, even if a person concludes, yes, I think my stirring of sexual attraction right now has crossed the line, the admission of that sin is a portal to experience, not persistent guilt and shame, but the fresh grace of mercy that comes from Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might say here this evening, regardless of, of the actual category of sexual sin. Brett, I've really messed up. Whether it's with an emotional affair or an actual physical affair or uh, indulging in pornography or, or giving into homosexual behavior. You say, Brad, I've messed up bad. I have a secret sin or I even have a public sin that has hurt another person a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. I want to remind you of a story from John chapter 8. If you remember the story, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus who had been caught, caught in adultery. And these Pharisees and scribes wanted her to be punished for her wrongdoing. But I, I want you to remember what Jesus does. And I want you to notice in what order he does it. First, the very first thing that he does after the Pharisees say she needs to be stoned is he speaks words of tender love and acceptance to her. And it changed her. Jesus forgives her and makes her a new creation. And I believe it gave her a whole new approach to sex. Listen, I don't want you to walk out of here tonight beat up about your sexual mistakes. I want you to realize what this woman realized, that Christ has made you new. For you to start seeing yourself like the woman did after she met Jesus. Jesus has died to make you a new creation, to forgive you and to cleanse you. Jesus even says, not only that, I will use you as you are now, even with your past. In fact, because of your past, 
I can actually make you into something beautiful that incorporates all of that so that you don't feel like you're plan B or a sub-Christian, so that you don't feel like you've really messed, uh, messed up and missed the best part of your life. If you will give yourself to me, you will have the best. Friends, for all of us, when we misuse sex, when we engage in that apart from God's design, we actually need to do the thing that we said at the very beginning of this series. We need to return to the first commandment. Right? We said that the first commandment really is the key to all the other commandments, and here it is. When we don't put God first... We will not flourish in our relationship with him or with others. Like when your soul is not right with God, you will crave things in sex that will not bring satisfaction. Remember, sex actually is a picture or or a shadow pointing beyond itself to the love of God given to us in Jesus. Yes. See, Jesus... It's in him that we see this fusion as he takes up on himself our sin and our flesh for us, and he gives us his righteousness and comes to live inside of us. There is where we see unconditional love that loves us in all of our faults and in all of our nakedness. Friends, there's only one kiss one set of arms that can fulfill your heart's needs. He is the intimacy your soul craves. And I, I'm going to just say this. I, I, um, <clears throat> I think for uh, men here tonight, this is a really hard concept to get. Because it starts to sound like Jesus is my boyfriend stuff. I understand the visceral reaction to that. Let me just say, um, uh, in my own life, as I've struggled with some of the things we've talked about tonight, I had to learn and relearn what it means to find Jesus as my satisfaction, as the one who can give pleasure, as the one who can bring fulfillment to me. So listen, again, men or women, Jesus can give you the intimacy that your soul craves. And here's the thing, when you find that, when you discover that, when you begin to experience that, you then begin to have the power to say no to the other things that threaten his design for sex. In fact, I would say it this way too. When you find him, sex gets so good. Because everything's in the right order, right? Again, it's not that you don't struggle with things anymore. It's just that they don't control you and dominate you like they used to. The great uh, Puritan Thomas Chalmers called all of this the expulsive power of a new affection. You've heard us talk about that here. Which means the only way that you and I can control the strong temptations of, of, to use our topic tonight, of sex is to replace them or overshadow them with a stronger affection. And so what is that? 
to being enraptured with the glory of Jesus. Friends, that is the only thing that will give us control over our sexual desires and help us avoid adultery, but more importantly, experience God's abundant life in our relationships with him and with our spouses. So friends, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 8, with unveiled faces, right? Moses had to put a veil on his face to sort of sort of look at God. Jesus has made a way for us to take the veil off and to behold the glory of God, being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, as we behold the glory of God, it is both the antidote for and the grace experienced in the pursuit of purity. Let's pray together.